You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Episode 75. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holfe, broadcasting from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. In this episode, I was fortunate to have a good friend and colleague, Will Tao, join me to talk about international students. Um, Some of the things that we addressed uh, are things that are just not really talked about or known. The reality is a lot of international students, they use education agents or they file their own applications. And that includes some of the extensions and and even after they graduate, applying for the post-grad work permits. And, you know, you'd think that this really isn't a complicated area, but we're seeing a lot of massive issues uh, with international students. Um, They're a really vulnerable group. And fortunately, I was able to have Will come on, and he. this is an area that he's really passionate about, and I know you're going to love it. Um, we talked about some of the recent trends in study permit refusals, some of the front-end barriers that exist for international students. Um, we talked about some of the challenges that exist when they are actually in Canada. And of course, the whole post-grad work permit problem and, and some of the solutions available. And, and then we'll spend a little bit of time diving into the crystal ball, if you will, and just talking about what the future holds for international students, at least through the lens that, that he sees things. And uh, it was great to have him join me. And so uh, without further ado, why don't we just jump to that interview with uh, immigration lawyer Will Tao out in Vancouver. Well, I am back here with one of my favorite guests from years gone by. And uh, it's hard to believe it's been over four years, four, six, I better do my math, three years since we last did an episode. And this is my guest, Will Tao. Welcome, Will. Hello. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me back on. Well, some of you will probably recognize if you've been listening to the podcast for a few years that way back on August the 10th, 2016, I had to figure out my years there for a little bit. Will came on as a, as a young, you know, a young lawyer just, you know, cutting his teeth in the area of immigration law to talk about life as a Canadian immigration lawyer and uh, his, a little bit of his journey, which has been an unbelievably popular episode, especially amongst the um, more junior members of the bar who are, you know, looking at immigration as a, a possible area to practice in. So you'll definitely have to go back and listen to, well, I'm not sure what the numbers, I can't remember, but it was season one, episode 26. So probably episode 26 after I went away from the, the seasons. So you definitely have to go back and, and listen to that. And Will's had a few little configuration changes. He's in a, a new firm with, with Edelman and Company. And uh, how's that going for you, Will? Uh, it's going incredible. Uh, I'm still cutting teeth. So <laughs> that never changes. I, I think you... We remain junior for as long as you uh, are still learning. So I probably will be junior for the rest of my life, but I'm well, coming to grasps with that. <laughs> yes. Based on that definition, I think there isn't a single one of us that isn't junior with all of the changes in, in this lovely area of law that we practice in. So not surprising. 
Yeah, so, yeah. But thanks again for having me on, and I'm excited to talk about an area that I'm very, very passionate about. Yeah, and and you know, if the listeners want to learn a little bit more, they could probably just Google Will now. He's uh, this this area of um, that we're covering today, which revolves around international students and some of the challenges that and barriers that they face, and some of the practical realities. And hopefully, we can talk a little bit about some potential solutions and. Uh, to, to some of the the issues that they're dealing with, but if you if you Google Will, I'm sure that you'll be able to track down some of the uh, presentations, some of the other things that he has done, and he's um, he's been pretty heavily involved in this this area. So I'm super happy to have him come on as as uh, someone that is um, fully up to speed with what's going on in this area. So thanks, Will. Thank you. All right. Well, why don't we start off with? Um, with some of the trends that you're seeing here with study permit refusals. And uh, I know that we've got some barriers that we're going to get into as well. But, but right now, we, I think, are we over 600,000 international students? I can't remember if we actually crossed 721,205. Oh I actually have this number. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. I had no idea that it crossed over 700. This okay. 2000 numbers. Yeah. So the clearly, largest number ever. Um, unbelievable. Clearly, they're gonna. You know, clearly, we're starting to see refusals all the time. So, so tell me a little bit about this. What, 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 what are we seeing right now, and and what are we looking at for the future? We're, we're looking at an increasing number of refusals. We don't have 2019 stats yet, but in 2018, about 34.6 percent of applications were refused, according to IRCC. And these app and these refusals are are coming in a very very interesting way in the sense that. Uh, Many times they're done very sporadically, uh, very pro forma language, you know, just with the generic checklists, as I'm sure you're all uh, very familiar with. And once you look at them a little bit closely, they don't, uh, they're easily challengeable in, in court. Yes. But unfortunately, with most people, they don't have the resources or the, or the warehouse or the access to that. So there's a whole slew of factors, but that's um, a bit of a summary. Yes. That's crazy. 34.6%. And how many do we have right now in Canada again? Uh, 721,000. Wow. Uh, not all of whom have study permits. Yes. I think the number of study permit holders is about half that, but 355,800, again, according to 2018 stats. Yeah. Wow. So what, so as far as let's, let's talk a little bit about these, these refusals. So you talked a little bit about the perform and I've experienced them myself with clients and well, I guess we could potentially take a step back and say, why in the world do we have so many international students now where we never had before? And uh, I'll, I'll let you, <laughs> I've got my own thoughts on this, but you know, what's created this, this, this situation we're in? Wow. Uh, I think, I mean, there's, there's a whole slew of, of historical factors, but I think most pertinent now um, definitely is, is the emergence of the Canadian education system as a commodity of students wanting to come here to get that high level education uh, and wanting to stay uh, in a large part. I think 60% of students want to actually stay here after their graduation. So um, in, in, in along with that, you have the United States, uh, Australia, UK, other countries, the five I countries actually increasing the scrutiny around uh, many of the applications, similar to where Canada is heading as well. Um, and of course, with the Trump factor in the US. So there's a lot of global shifts as well. And, and, and students are interested in coming, although. Again, to be clear, not all students actually want to stay permanently, which creates one of the tension points in, in study permit applications. Yeah, that's a good point. 
And uh, without a doubt, each and every one of those things plays a role. And I, I think what I would do too is slide in one more little component called express entry. And I know when I'm doing my international consultations, um, people all over the world, they say, well, my CRS is too low. My comprehensive ranking system is too low. What can I do to increase it? And you know, the options, well, do, is there a possibility of a job offer? And, but, but pretty much on everyone's list, number one is, well, should I go to school in Canada? And we're talking people that are 30 plus, whatever, you know, 40 that are now thinking, oh, I'm, maybe I should try to, to get, uh, get into school, get those extra points, get the post-grad work permit and go that route. And so I've seen a significant increase in these types of candidates who just don't rank high enough to get that invitation to apply under express entry who are now pursuing this as an option. And then of course, you know, they're, they're not your typical candidates. So the likelihood of refusal is, you know, is significantly higher. And mm -hmm. um, so I have no doubt that that's also contributing in a large way to, you know, to the volumes. And now, you know, IRCC is starting to realize, whoa, <laughs> what, do, yeah. what are we going to do to put the brakes on this? And um, we've seen it Exactly, before. exactly. And, I, and, I, and I'd also like to add to that, um, you know, with the points that are being assigned to international students, even those that are completing and aren't able to pass that initial hurdle of getting a study permit are being stopped at the uh, later stages because their points aren't high enough, right? So I, I, I see them actually not changing the fact additional points are given for international students, but in fact, probably increasing or adding more value to students who have studied here, which itself will promote more students to continue to study and create more demand. Yeah, exactly. So we, you know, these, these front end barriers that we've kind of uh, highlighted here a little bit at the beginning, maybe you can talk a little bit about that for, for these international students. Absolutely. Uh, so cultural contexts and historical migration patterns of client groups are, are, are often a factor, but we're seeing very generic assessments of that rather than personalized ones. And, and, and various courts have said that that's not okay. But, you know, for, for example, in Africa, where you have such high refusals rates, something my colleague Kelly Tufkill illustrated in this very wonderful map that you can point at, you know, there, there are refusals at 80, 90% in many of these countries where in, you know, other Western European countries, uh, you're having those as approval rates. So you're having a lot of those sort of cultural contexts play a role. Then you also have issues with dual intention where an applicant wants to apply to Canada for permanent residency, ultimately, as you mentioned, and indicates that they have a dual intention. However, in their materials and in what they provide, it is clear that their primary intention is actually to stay here. And, and, the, and their actual dual intention, which is that permanent residence application part, may not be very well established or may not even be possible at this early stage. So you're seeing refusals there. Then you have officers look at the cost of studies where, you know, the officers are trying to make comparables, but oftentimes they just do a generic, why aren't you just studying in your home country without actually saying, well, there's a program there in your home country that's cheaper. Why are you not studying there? So those are also leading to uh, cases being refused. And then, of course, something like travel history, which the courts have said cannot, are at a most a neutral factor, but again, rear into almost several decisions saying that, you know, the individual doesn't have travel history, therefore they shouldn't be able to get their study permits. Yeah, it's that vicious cycle, right? <laughs> How am I Absolutely. supposed to get travel history and experience if, if my visas are not approved? But uh, uh, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, when I think about um, this whole interaction, because I do so much express entry these days, 
Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I see and I have seen is refusals also based on the fact that someone had an express entry uh, profile in the pool. And now, like any other thing, it's, you know, they can't say, well, you know, you've got a profile in the pool, so you're intending to become an immigrant and therefore I'm refusing your study permit. But, but it is a factor and I'm counseling, you know, the vast majority of my clients, if they are intending on immigrating to Canada or want to apply and, and they think they don't have enough points and they have to go through a different route, do not submit your profile. Just leave it out. And if you want to increase your chances of getting through, apply for your study permit. And if you're successful, great. If you're not, then go back and consider, you know, submitting a, a profile and going, trying through a, a provincial nominee program or something. But, but yeah, they, they're looking, they're, they're pulling out every stop they can to try to find reasons to refuse. And it's, yeah, some of them are just, yeah, just, just uh, not terribly strong in terms of, yeah. uh, you know. That would be a very interesting judicial review of someone who just created a profile, hasn't made an application formally. And I know there's, you know, when you create a profile, you aren't asked to. Mm-mm. They do acknowledge you put in your information, but it's not the same as an application where you're subject to misrep, subject to all the, mm-hmm. the, the, the declarations. So that's interesting that they're yeah. using that as well. I mean, I've actually seen a recent case where someone... Uh, and it's not in the exact study permit context, but what they did is they found someone's comment on an online portal, yes. oh, not online forum, saying oh. that they wanted to immigrate to Canada and oh. use that as a reason for refusal. And I thought that was just oh, incredible wow. that someone could be like, <laughs> you have to watch what you're posting online now, right? And Everything. as the government's AI systems become even better, that they can like gather this in the snap of a finger. Uh, I think applicants have to be careful of LinkedIn and all those other things that they're representing themselves on. Absolutely. All right. So, yeah. So as far as these front end barriers, I don't know if they have anything else that you you want to address. I think we, we realize to a large extent that the government is doing whatever they can. And yeah, uh, yeah. I I think the the one other thing I would add is that uh, it's become increasingly important for practitioners and and clients as well to know about judicial reviews and know about the the, the process. I know a lot of individuals may have secured consultants or agents in those initial applications who, who, aren't able to practice it or, or won't recommend it, but uh, navigating uh, the judicial review process to address these reasons and to hold uh, decision makers to account is becoming increasingly important. And costs, of course, are always a, a front-end barrier to that barrier, but uh, it's something that I, I recommend more practitioners uh, get into and, and, and recommend their clients to, to look into. Absolutely. I'm with you 100% there. And for years, I'd never, ever... Uh, delved into that area, but now I'm at the stage where, you know, I've been referring a ton of these to one of my colleagues in Calgary, and at least I just, unless I just get her to join me and work with me, <laughs> do it for Express Entry too. I mean, some of the refusals I'm seeing out of Express Entry oh, yes. are, you know, they they blow your mind. They're yeah. just, you yeah. know, what was this person thinking? What mm-hmm. was, you know, uh, so I think that th- that's the way we help refine the system by Agreed. bringing to attention these deficiencies. And I think that, you know, the, the department will respond when they see these cases come up and when they see a, a trend. And if we don't raise it, they'll never see it. Right. And yeah. clients don't get the best service when you don't tell them all the options that are available to them. Right. And at, and at least at the ground level and, you know, one of the other avenues that we take obviously next week, well, this week and uh, tomorrow I fly to Ottawa for our national, um, uh, the meetings that we have with the, the government um, folks. And these are all issues, Will, that are firmly on the agenda. 
And uh, it's, you know, that's one way that we can bring back that feedback to the top, but, you know, whether or not it actually results in it filtering down, um, sometimes it works and that's great, but without a doubt, judicial review is the, you know, is, is, uh, creates yeah. the power of change. So as are your consultations, which I think are, are very important. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the more we delve into this, the more we realize this is all a learning experience, not only for us as counsel and, and for applicants, but also for the government. I mean, a lot of these, the, the regime around study permits is largely based around policies and policies are written in a temporal manner because they can be changed, because yes. they can be adjusted, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's up to us to sort of point, point out where those policies are falling short and recommend that the government change them. Absolutely. Okay, so let's pivot a little bit here. And why don't we talk about, you know, the students that actually get in. Mm-hmm. So when they get their study permits approved, and we, you know, this isn't kind of a how to get a study permit approved. That's not really the nature of what we're talking about here. But we're, we're trying to identify some of the, you know, the issues, you know, trying to come in, but also once you hear. So can you talk just a little bit about some of the challenges that students experience once they're here? Because I don't, I don't think they really think about this before they, you know, before they start the process. Yes, and I think council often either miss miss these issues as well, or they're not called upon it because so many students utilize either themselves or agents to apply. Yes. Uh, so we don't really see these until the back end, for example, on, on your end when you're doing the the express entry applications. But a lot of students now, and actually one of the ways that I think they're being filtered, is when they are in school, whether or not they are studying at that school or at a different school whether they're actively pursuing studies, whether they need to take a leave. These are all things that have been clarified over this year. Um, but what I suspect and what I predict is a lot more, are a lot more refusals of study permit extensions um, and misrepresentation findings, those type of things, as a way to filter the number of students and try and eliminate the possible pool of students who eventually are eligible for permanent residency or even their postgraduate work permits. So, well, maybe you can just take a second, just, you know, at kind of a high level to just remind the listeners what a student actually has to do to maintain their status on a Absolutely. study permit. So a, a student uh, subject to some exceptions with involving family members in certain categories must remain enrolled during the duration that they hold their study permit in Canada and must actively pursue studies while they are in Canada. Actively pursuing studies isn't defined, but the courts, especially recently in a case called Gersimran, has really come down hard saying that poor academic progress is not actively pursuing studies. So in short, be a good student, study, show progress towards your studies. And if those are in question, I would be careful about re-entering Canada at the port of entry and my interactions with uh, border officers in those settings. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So a practical question then, how, how do the government officers on extensions find out the grades or you know, how the kids are doing in school? So um, the universities actually and, and colleges, DLIs, have a compliance uh, reporting system where they're asked to report on the students' statuses. I, don't, I can't believe I can't remember exactly how often it is per year, um, but essentially, I, I think it's twice a year. But they get sent uh, 
emails and, and they have a, they have a portal they have to self-report students in and then based on how they self-report students some students who are not actively pursuing studies or flagged as non-compliant may get emails from ircc upon extension or or otherwise requesting proof that they've actually been studying so there's there's that's the system that works behind the scenes to check if students are studying or not perfect that and that wasn't in place like in the past that was not in place and so you you and at least that's my understanding that that there wasn't an, a real meaningful easy way for the government to get that information obviously with the regulatory changes and the added expectations with these students then you know they put in place measures and that would allow them to track this but i think a lot of students don't appreciate it and in fairness many many of these students and i think will you can confirm you know, they come in with a lot of misapprehensions um, because they were outright lied to. And, uh, you know, things were misrepresented with respect to their abilities to work. Um, and, you know, a lot of them that were, you know, the study permit is, is used as a route to get a job offer and, and go down that process. And there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of abuse of these international students. And they're so desperate to be able to come here that they... You know, they don't, they don't ask those additional questions. And then when they get here, they're, they're surprised uh, when, yeah. you know, when awful things happen. It, you've hit the nail on the head and it's a, it's a huge systemic issue that starts from the institutional level where there is no regulation on uh, international uh, education advising or consulting, which gets so tied into immigration. These education agents get paid for the number of students they're able to convert into into either uh, term the courses that they're able to take, which they get a cut of, which in some cases can be up to twenty five percent of what the student pays, and all of this happens in this in this behind the scenes uh, black market almost of of international students and the students themselves and, and their families obviously just want to many times just want to come to Canada to you know leave a, an unfortunate situation or, or or create new opportunities. Uh, but the, the reality of it is a lot of students end up here with these uh, misgivings of what the education system is about. I mean, I've heard too many countless stories of students not even knowing what city they were arriving in and realizing that their school was six, seven hours away in the middle of possibly nowhere. Um, and it's really heartbreaking because there's also very little institutional support from them for them here that actually looks at these issues and gives them spaces to talk about them or gives them advice. So that's one of the things that I'm working on and, and trying to inspire more of from these institutions. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. Well, I looked, there was a time when I actually looked into that. I thought, what is going on with these education agents and how does this work? And uh, I was so surprised to see that, you know, most universities kind of have their go-to agent and that agent is under contract with them. And like you said, they're, they're paid exorbitant amounts to recruit these students. And then, of course, you know, they say, I'm not providing any immigration services. That's for free. You know, the school's paying me. And so they get around that, you know, the infringing those rules. And um, it's, it's just a tough, tough situation. And we're not even talking about the ones who, you know, are going to these schools, which personally... I wish they would just call out the vast majority of private schools. Now, I'm, I'm qualifying this because there are some good ones. But uh -huh. if you have a designated learning institution that has programs that are specifically excluded from the ability to get a postgrad work permit, I don't think they, they, they deserve to have a DLI in the first place. And, um, you know, I see this, this situation where students are, are, 
you know, duped into, to, you know, going to, to school at a certain school, not even knowing that, you know, they may be a, a designated learning institution, but have no ability to give them an open work permit after the fact. And they, and they only learn until, you know, when it's too late. So, um, yeah, I think there's far too many schools to start with and, uh, that, that have that designation. And I think there's just too many of them that their sole purpose is to, to educate international students with, you know, no hope of any Canadian or, or, or permanent resident, you know, well, I shouldn't say no hope, but there's no way a Canadian or permanent resident would waste their time going there. And so they're purely Absolutely. just study permit factories. Absolutely. And one of the things too that immigration did and, and to their credit was they actually, what privates did was they did these private public partnerships where you would do one year at the private non-eligible and then one year at the public. But because that was equivalent to a two-year program, IRCC would sometimes grant a three-year postgraduate work permit. However, now because of the changes that they've made this year, they only look at the time at the eligible institution. So a lot of these students who thought they were getting three years are actually getting just the one year that they're at that institution in. So uh, I think that these private-public pathways are going to become less popular, and I think that there's going to be ways to cull that. That being said, as you mentioned, there's also some really, really good private schools in, 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 mm-hmm. in areas. And, um, for example, in the, here in, in Vancouver, it's you know, a lot of the film and television, a lot of the, yes. the, the design, and a lot of those non-traditional academic pathways that create so many jobs for the economy I almost feel like some schools need to be added to the eligibility list, even though they aren't as opposed to this other way of creating, you know, a whole slew of privates. I think, you know, you, you maybe expand the net a bit on these eligible or create more pathways for them, but then try and limit the number of schools on mass. Cause you're right. Some of the quality of some of this education is just horrible. And yeah, it's just, these are cash grabs. yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's exactly the sole purpose is to, it, you know, is to generate income for the, the owners of the schools and less so for the well being of these international students. So that is a whole different podcast episode. Without a doubt. <laughs> there are so many issues just when you, when you, when you start with students, uh, it's interesting how my practice, you know, still in many areas, but students seems to be a reoccurring theme in a lot of these cases, but it just goes off in so many different directions. It's itself a full-time practice, uh, working within the students, uh, circle. Exactly. Okay. So these students, they find a way to get their study permits. They come here, they complete uh-huh. their studies and now they're looking at, you know, theoretically, a nice pathway to permanent residence via postgrad work permit. So there's been issues in the past, and you've talked a lot a bit ab- a lot about you know certain aspects of this whole process being resolved to some extent this year. Um, but maybe you can give a little overview of some of the issues that postgrad work permit holders have had, or I should say, international students looking to ob- obtain a postgrad work permit. What what they've been experiencing. I'm going to put some qualifications on maybe what I just said. They, they, they're not being, they're not resolved, these issues. In okay. fact, I would say that the changes have helped a lot of students, but have also exacerbated a lot of problems. So it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword at this stage. Um, the refusal rates for postgraduate work permits has continued to rise from what I've seen. Um, I don't have the most latest stats, but we've seen a historical rise ever since they started clamping down on the privates that were not supposed to give postgraduate work permits. Um, but now the main issues include passport expiry, transcript issues where a student is not in, uh, you know, either the, the, the transcript's not a final transcript or the students were part-time studies in the middle of their program as opposed to the final semester. Uh, and it's leading to some to refusals. Uh, and also the length of the postgraduate work permit continues to be a, an issue depending on the program, accelerated programs. 
And then, you know, finally you have this new 180 days that was given for the postgraduate work permit, but how that interacts with another rule that says your study permit is is invalid 90 days after studies are completed uh, has also become a problem when students can work between the time that they are um, notified that they're completing their program uh, and they're not supposed to start working until they apply for postgraduate work permit. That's creating problems. So there's a lot of these issues that have been created as a result of this idea of putting a wider safety net to help students. It's actually still created even more uncertainty in other areas. Interesting. And you know, and this is all added on top of the the, the past world of of problems. You know, one of the main ones that we experienced in the past, which, you know, was the fact you're, you know, if you screwed up on your application, you were hooped, right? There was no way of going back. If you made a mistake on that postgrad work permit and it was taking three or four months to process it, um, it was hard to go back because of the lack of a study permit yeah, that had expired and all those kinds of things. And so it's, it's interesting to see, and I recognize the efforts that the government is making to try to resolve that issue, you know, with the 180 days that we've talked about. And I know that some of our listeners probably don't understand the background or the context for that, but mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, well, could you just touch on it just briefly? You know, what, what's the deal with this 180 days thing that you're yeah. referencing? So before, um, one of the main rules, which I forgot to mention, was you had to hold a study permit, a valid study permit, in order to make a postgraduate work permit application. So that created a lot of problems for individuals whose studies permits uh, were or, or, or had expired. And then um, within 90 days of the completion of studies, um, they're supposed to uh, apply for a postgraduate work permit. So then moving it to 180 days gives a, lo- a much larger window and also removing the requirement to actually hold a study permit also creates a larger window. However, that being said, because of the 90-day invalidity uh, in our in Reg 222 of our to get a little technical there, but because the study permits become invalid after 90 days, but you have 180 days to make this application, it's catching a lot of people in between who don't realize they've lost status. Hmm. Especially when they've just continued to work, right? They've transitioned from their, you know, their part-time work into into full-time. They just continue to work right through. What are you know? What kind of decisions are you seeing now in that type of scenario? Like, are, is is IRCC being merciful, or are they crucifying these kids? Uh, from what I've been seeing, still a lot of refusals. So uh, the crucifixion is is very real. Um, but I, you know, on a hopeful end, I, I think IRCC is figuring out this restoration issue that I know Ravi was fighting in Nukala, uh, Raj was fighting uh, in Remen. Uh, so IRCC has come up with this unofficial policy on how to restore yourself back to postgraduate work permit through this study permit. Um, but it also in the, in the, in the context of these conversations, and I'm sure by the time maybe this podcast is published, though, they may have new instructions as things often change in this area, but they've recommended a a restoration to student, even though an individual may not be currently studying as a bit of a transitory application and then attaching a postgraduate work permit. And the idea is you can only restore to a status that you previously held. Although, as we know, in other areas of immigration, that's entirely not true when people are restoring to visitor. Uh, yes. when they previously worked mm-hmm. or to worker when they never worked before in terms of the spousal open permit. So there's a lot of these different type of uh, permits that operate on a different assumption. And immigration, I think, is trying to reconcile this and what the court has said in different cases. So it's making for a hodgepodge of policy 
discussion that is really interesting because it's going to eventually resolve itself, I feel. Perfect. And what I'll do, um, maybe Will, I'll get you to provide me with some of those links back to uh, Ravi and Raj's cases and, and some of the policy that IRCC has released. And we'll put those in the show notes for, for the listeners so they can read up on those a little bit more. Absolutely. And a lot of them from immigration rep emails that I can try and forward to you, which again goes to another you know, concern I have that we shouldn't be uh, providing policy advice to specific representatives because they've asked the right, right questions right and questions. that this should be a public yeah. knowledge. But, you know, we can only change so much as we want to change. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's shift one more time and let's let's look at, you know, how to how to help these students who are in difficult situations. And maybe we'll take a little bit of a look through a crystal ball and, and, uh, and just cover some of the issues that you see coming up and, and some overarching, um, I guess, concerns, but also opportunities maybe that are out there. Yeah, so one of my big concerns is I do see 2020 as a year of enforcement. I see a lot of changes that have been implemented, of course, I mentioned with uh, increasing uh, inquiry into the studies of students and now clarified leave provisions that still create uncertainties, um, that students will be pursued for their lack of study, uh, and also in terms of the impunity that they're going to go, they're going after students for making mistakes on forms. I think biometrics and exit entry initiatives are going to reveal those, uh, as well as the student attendances. So I actually have a bit of a negative outlook on what this means for students, especially in light of the lack of spaces, as you highlighted earlier in the show on express entry and in permanent resident spaces. So I think one of the things we have to do as practitioners is to make it abundantly clear. And I think it's our moral and ethical obligation to do so that the chances of permanent residents are going to be difficult, especially when the, those facts come up where we estimate scores that are, are not going to be selected, where we know the English skills aren't there. Um, we can give as much positive encouragement as possible, but I think we cannot overpromise, and we have to be realistic to the system. I think we also should have an ongoing obligation to students after they get their permits to, to check in with them, uh, as long as they're, you know, maybe even build that into our retainers, but to make sure that they're being monitored and, and supported and cared for in between the times they get their study permits and their extensions and their postgraduate work permits. That, that makes a lot of sense. I know lots of us, when we finish the work that we do for our, our clients, they get their visa, whatever it is, then, then that's it. And um, I'm actually uh, in the process of doing a little radio show with a local university that I'm, I'm going to be starting that I'm hoping to syndicate um, you know, across the other university campuses. And it's going to talk about these specific issues, you know, addressing areas that, you know, us as council, we rarely delve into after, right? We, we're so focused on getting the result and then good luck, away you go. But so many of these students, just, they just don't understand and, and the consequences now are astronomical. Um, most of the immigration applications that we do now, um, are, you know, there's just no room for error. And uh, us as immigration lawyers, obviously that's giving us, uh, well, the government's going to be creating a whole bunch more work for us, that's for sure. And I'm not, you know, from that standpoint, I'm not complaining. But when I put myself in the shoes of these international students, it's tough. It's really tough. 
Absolutely. And I think that that's great that you're going on to provide more front end resources. Cause again, as I mentioned earlier in the show, there needs to be more safe and brave spaces funded by these institutions who are making four times, three times more off these students mm-hmm. than domestic students to say, listen, we, we recognize that we've taken this much money from you. Here's at least some resources or here's some money that you can go and organize and talk and, and, and start seeking the resources you need to help yourselves because immigration is a very isolating process. It's a very assimilating process. And a lot of students forget that their biggest resources are actually, uh, in a positive sense, each other and professionals and, and, and psychologists and, and all the things that Canada has, offers. And, and those shouldn't be made uh, not accessible to international students. Unfortunately, I, I've from my experiences speaking to international students and speaking in these spaces, students constantly feel alone. And and even as a lawyer, I, I find myself having to make recommendations to psychologists, uh, you know, putting them in contact with other uh, individuals to, to, to try and, you know, increase their ability to to handle life in Canada. And these are some of the challenging factors that I think we, we need to figure out more societal resources. Civil society needs to play a bigger role in helping students. Yeah. I I'm with you there. Well, a hundred percent. And we, you know, when we're on the ground, we see this, you know, we see the people who come into our offices and usually the only time I see students is when everything's gone South and uh, it's extremely difficult to see how, you know, they, they, did their very, very best. They didn't do anything wrong. They just didn't fully understand what was required and they lacked the ability. And, and I'll call out the universities, you know, I'll call out the colleges because they, they don't do a, a, a real spectacular job after the, after the kids get into school. Um, they are kind of left to their devices and some schools, yes, are really, really good at it, but a lot of them are really not. And so, you know, when they run into problems, they don't know where to turn. And uh, usually by the time they end up in our, in our offices, it's, it's really tough for us to unravel and fix what's happened. So I can give, I can definitely give a tip on this point. And I've, and this is from the, the past several years of working with several international students in my practice. The ones that have been most successful have all come to me uh, so early on in the process when they've just started their classes, when they're looking to do that pathway. And I'm sure they will tell you that that $300 or $400 they spent at that front end to, to talk to me and, and, and walk through it and to resource themselves with knowledge of the process would be, is much better than having to spend the thousands of dollars at the end to try and stop someone, you know, stop yourself from leaving Canada or, or in desperation because now you need an employer support. Uh, and again, people are unfortunately are paying for LMIAs left, right and center. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, that ability to, plan in advance is so important for international students. And I would suggest that all international students seek independent advice early on in their university college careers. Absolutely. I am. seems like I'm just uh, confirming every single thing that you're saying, Will, but you're, you're so right. If they would just, just come early, just spend a little bit to get some strategic direction, then they can carry forward, right? And, uh, you know, and we're not even talking about the, the small little tiny mistakes and clerical errors that result in applications getting refused. This is, this is big picture stuff. This is what am I, you know, what am I going to do following completion of these studies? You know, you know, are these studies that I've chosen going to result in me even being able to get a job? 
And, um, you know, I know we're, we're coming to the end of our, um, of our episode here, but, uh, you know, one of the issues I have is, uh, take for example, a massage therapist. So some kids will come here and they'll go to school, get their, you know, their massage therapy. Um, and that's all fine and dandy, but, uh, they need a job offer. You know, they, they get their postgraduate work permit and that's great, but they're not getting the, the extra points they need to, to get through express entry. And maybe it is their language that's not quite there. Well, the industry doesn't pay on an hourly basis, you know? So even, mm-hmm. and, and we've, we've gone down this path with a number of different, you know, uh, massage uh, therapy clinics. And the, the reality is the, if the industry <laughs> pays on a, you know, on a, on a per massage basis or whatever it is, whatever the industry, you know, if students don't know about that in the beginning, they're, they're going to be in trouble. And, um, they're just, you know, the universities are happy to, and colleges are happy to take their tuition and yep, you're, you're accepted, you're admitted to school and good luck. But on the other end, you know, that's where those, like you said, just a small little, a little consultation can, can often save, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars on the back end. Mm -hmm. And I, and I don't think we should just put the government off the hook too, because I think there are so many things, the changing nature of work, the fact that people hold non-traditional jobs now that contractor models are, are, are becoming increasingly yeah, almost uh, more the norm mm-hmm. are the norms. And, and, and you know, that, that knock, the knock code itself might not reflect the individual who has to operate a store and do everything from sweep the dust to met to, to, you know, work at the front desk to also doing highly technical and skilled jobs. Um, so I think I, you know, from, if I were the government, I would look carefully at two things. One, um, you know, if their numbers are this high, are, are there, is there a, a way to limit this? And this may be through limiting letters of acceptance. They, this may be through some sort of quota system eventually that needs to be implemented because accepting so many students into Canada um, and refusing so many students isn't going to be sustainable moving forward, especially where there's so few spaces in both permanent residency and agency applications if, if those fail. The second end would be to look at how do we support students who have gone through the program, who did get postgraduate work permits? Should they get some value for their unskilled work or for work that doesn't fit the usual model? Is it is it fair simply just to ignore that and give them zero points for that and, and, and ask them to write three, four language tests to, to increase their listening skill by one point? I don't know if that's fair, right? So I think that there, there has to be some work on both ends of this permanent resident spectrum. Well, there's definitely lots more for us to talk about in the future as this unfolds. It's clearly a, a very, very uh, alive issue that is going to be evolving, and um, and it's hard, you know, the, the decisions and, and how you how you solve this is is not easy. You, you know, you you'll probably remember back um, maybe a little bit before you got into the game, but you know, we had our federal skilled worker program, right? And and the pass mark was set at 67, which it which it is right now. And, but there was no intake control. And uh, we've, you know, the, what do we see? We saw six to 700,000 um, applicants in the queue. And then the government did their, you know, their major calls of applications, which I think personally was heartless. But uh, <laughs> that's what they had to do in their mind to, to get a handle on things. And I'm just surprised that, you know, that uh, they've allowed this to kind of get to this stage. But it, it is, you know, it's the world that we're in. And so it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. 
Yep, and I and I, and I uh, thank you for taking such a, a leadership role uh, with the CBA, with uh, these organizations, and with schools now, as you're saying, uh, to bring these issues forward. So I think it's you know, like I said, there's this war has to be fought in many different directions, and I think you're doing a, a stand-up job and sharing and spreading this information. So I'm happy to be part of your podcast again. Awesome, thanks so much, Will. Now, if uh, an individual says, "Oh," That guy, I, I want to hire him. <laughs> I want to book one of these consults and I want to get a, a, a really solid understanding of what I need to do going forward. What's the best way to reach you now, Will? Yeah, I, so by email at will at edelman.ca. I also have, so it's E-D-E-L-M-A-N-N.ca. I also have a uh, website, vancouverimmigrationblog.com, where I constantly write about these issues. Uh, so through one of those channels uh, or through Mark, uh, I'm sure you can find us. And again, for me, this is not about the business drumming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, if there's any way that I can assist you and your fellow students to organize or speak for your institution or do other things, I, I'm, I'm more than willing to do so. And I do a lot of this pro bono just because I think it's so important. My, 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 my late father came to Canada as an international student. My spouse was an international student. So for me, this is very personal work. Gotcha. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I, I dig into it so deeply. Awesome. Thanks so much, Will. I really, really appreciate you coming to join me. And for sure, we will have you back uh, in the future. Thank you, Mark. Well, there you have it. Another excellent episode. And, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for all of the guests that come and join me. And obviously, this is something Will is super passionate about, and he shares some great insight. So, once again, thanks, Will. A big shout out to you, my friend. An excellent episode. And definitely go and check out his, uh, his blog, the VancouverImmigrationBlog.com. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And some of the other things that he had uh, addressed, you can find them in the show notes. Um, if you felt this podcast was a, was a good one, head on over to iTunes where uh, you can subscribe to it and uh, leave a review. I love reviews. Obviously, those reviews help it to get noticed and uh, just... You know, I think there's a lot of wonderful value that comes from these podcasts, and as is the case with with podcasts or videos or anything that we're doing online, there's a lot of noise out there, and it's hard to get noticed with uh, so many different offerings. But uh, those reviews mean something, and I, I really appreciate anyone who takes the time to go over there and leave a review and rate the podcast. Uh, that's pretty much it for today, guys. Uh, we've got another uh, episode coming up here. Um, within our hearings, our immigration hearings and appeals with Rekha McNutt. I'm looking forward to releasing that. And uh, yeah, just a bunch of other things. If you have an idea you'd like to share and you'd like to come and join me as a guest, send me an email to mholthy at holthylaw.com and uh, let me know about your idea and I'd, I'd love to have you join me. So thanks so much, guys. Have a wonderful day, uh, I guess evening or morning, depending on when you're listening to this episode. But take care and I wish you all the best as you navigate this crazy world that we call Canadian immigration. Oh, Canada, greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your soil. This place I love, my home and native land We welcome all and with you we'll stand We'll set you straight with law policy
privacy and practice here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am your guy for info that's up to date. Yeah.